Chapter Four of the Social History of Smoking. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Social History of Smoking by G. L. Apperson. Chapter Four: Cavalier and Roundhead Smokers. A custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain dangerous to the lungs, and in the black stinking fume thereof, nearest resembling the horrible Stygian smoke of the pit that is bottomless. James I, a counterblast to tobacco. The social history of smoking, from the point of view of fashion, during the period covered by this and the next two chapters, may be summarized in a sentence. Through the middle of the seventeenth century, smoking maintained its hold upon all classes of society, but in the later decades there are distinct signs that the habit was becoming less universal, and it seems pretty clear that by the time of Queen Anne, smoking, though still extensively practiced in many classes of society, was to a considerable extent out of vogue among those most amenable to the dictates of fashion. It is certain that the armies of the Parliament were great smokers, for the fines of seventeenth-century pipes on the sites of their camps have been numerous. A considerable number of pipes of the Caroline period, with the usual small elongated bowls, were found in 1902 at Chichester, in the course of evacuating the foundations of the Old Swan Inn, East Street, for building the present branch of the London and County Bank. We know also that the Roundhead soldiers smoked in circumstances that did them no credit. In the account of the trial of Charles I, written by Dr. George Bates, principal physician to his majesty and to charles the second also we read that when the sentence of the court presided over by bradshaw condemning the king quote, to death by severing his head from his body had been read the soldiers treated the monarch with great indignity and barbarity they spat on his clothes as he passed by and even in his face and they blew the smoke of tobacco a thing which they knew his majesty hated in his sacred mouth throwing their broken pipes in his way as he passed along. Time brought its revenges. The dead protector was not treated too respectfully by his soldiery. Evelyn, describing Cromwell's superb funeral, says that the soldiers in the procession were drinking and taking tobacco in the streets as they went. Whether the use of tobacco prevailed as generally among the cavalier forces is less certain, but as King Charles hated the weed, courtiers may have frowned upon its use. One distinguished cavalier, however, either smoked his pipe or proposed to do so on a historic occasion. In Markham's Life of the Great Lord Fairfax, there is a lively account of how the Duke, then Marquis, of Newcastle, with his brother Charles Cavendish, drove in a coach and six to the field of Marston Moor on the afternoon before the battle. His grace was in a very bad humor. He applied to Rupert, says Markham, for orders as to the disposal of his own most noble person, and was told that there would be no battle that night, and that he had better get to his coach and go to sleep, which he accordingly did. But the decision as to battle or no battle did not rest with Prince Rupert. Cromwell attacked the royal army with the most disastrous results to the king's cause. His grace of Newcastle woke up, left his coach, and fought bravely, being, according to his duchess, the last to ride off the fatal field, leaving his coach and six behind him. 
so far markham but according to another account when rupert told him that there would be no battle the duke betook himself to his coach lit his pipe and making himself very comfortable fell asleep the original authority however for the whole story is to be found in a paper of notes by clarendon on the affairs of the north preserved among his manuscripts in this paper clarendon writes the marquis asked the prince what he would do his highness answered we will charge them to-morrow morning my lord asked him whether he was sure the enemy would not fall on them sooner he answered no and the marquis thereupon going to his coach hard by and calling for a pipe of tobacco before he could take it the enemy charged and instantly all the prince's horse were routed gardiner evidently follows this account for his version of the story is newcastle strolled toward his coach to solace himself with a pipe before he had time to take a whiff the battle had begun the incident was made the subject of a picture by ernest crofts a r a which was exhibited at the royal academy in eighteen eighty eight it shows the duke leaning out of his carriage window with his pipe in his hand among the documents in the possession of the society of antiquaries of scotland there is a letter patent under the great seal of charles i in sixteen thirty four granted for the purpose of correcting the irregular sales and restraining the immoderate use of tobacco in scotland the letter states that tobacco was used on its first introduction as a medicine but had since been so largely indulged in and was frequently of such bad quality as not only to injure the health but deprave the morals of the king's subjects these were sentiments worthy of king james dr matthew livingstone who has calendared this document says that the king therein proceeds in order to prevent such injurious results of the use of tobacco to appoint sir james leslie and thomas dalmohoy to enjoy for seven years the sole power of appointing licensed vendors of the commodity these vendors under due examination as to their fitness were to be permitted on payment of certain compositions and an annual rent in augmentation of the king's revenue to sell tobacco in small quantities the letter further directs that the licensees so appointed shall become bound to sell only sound tobacco an admirable provision if a trifle difficult to enforce and to keep good order in their homes and shops the latter clause adds mr livingstone would almost suggest that the tobacco was to be sold for consumption on the premises as i have no doubt it was and that the smokers were probably in the habit at their own symposiums of using even as they may still i dare say other indulgences not so soothing in their effects as the coveted weed a suggestion for which there seems little foundation in the clause to which livingstone refers one inference at least may be fairly drawn i think from this document and that is that smoking was very popular north as well as south of the tweed tobacco was certainly cheap in scotland the following entries are from a manuscript document of household expenses kept by the minister of the parish of eastwood near glasgow the rev william hamilton they cover two months only and show that the minister was a furious smoker the prices given are in scots currency the pound scots being worth about twenty pence sterling may sixteen fifty one item to andrew carnduff for four pounds of tobacco one pound item to robert hamilton chapman for tobacco eighteen shillings item nine june to my wife to give for six trenchers and tobacco one pound thirteen and fourpence item 
10 June, the said day for tobacco and stuffs, 14 and 4 pence. 28 June, item for tobacco, 13 and 9 pence. It may perhaps be interesting to compare with these prices, from which, apparently, it may be inferred that near Glasgow tobacco could be bought for some five pence a pound, which seems incredibly cheap, the occasional expenditure upon tobacco of a worthy citizen of Exeter some few years earlier. Extracts from the financial diary of this good man, whose name was John Hayne, and who was an extensive dealer in serges and woolen goods generally, as well as in a smaller degree of cotton goods also, were printed some years ago with copious annotations by the late Dr. Brushfield. In this diary, covering the years 1631-43, to 43, there were some forty entries concerning the purchase of what is always, save in one case, called tobacco. These entries give valuable information as to the prices of the two chief kinds of tobacco. One was imported from Spanish America, which up to 1639 Hain calls Verines, and after that date Spanish. The other was imported from English colonies, chiefly from Virginia. The Veronese kind, Dr. Brushfield suggests, was obtained from Verena, near the foot of the range of mountains forming the west boundary of Venezuela, and watered by a branch of the Orinoco River. Hain also notes the purchase of Tertudos tobacco, but what that may have been I cannot say. From the various entries relating respectively to Veronese or Spanish tobacco, and to Virginia tobacco, it is clear that the former ranged in price from eight shillings to thirteen shillings per pound while the latter was from one shilling six pence to four shillings per pound. There is one entry of perfumed tobacco, ten ounces, of which were bought at the very high price of fifteen shillings six pence. The variations in price of both Spanish and Virginia tobacco were largely due to the frequent changes in the amount of the duty thereon. In 1604, King James I, newly come to the throne and full of iconoclastic fervor against the weed, raised the duty to six shillings eight pence per pound, in addition to the regular duty of two pence. On March 29, 1615, there was a grant to a licensed importer of the late imposition of two shillings per pound on tobacco, which shows that there must have been considerable fluctuation between 1604 and 1615, while in September 1621 the duty stood at nine pence. Through James's reign, much dissatisfaction was expressed about the importation of Spanish tobacco, and the outcome of this may probably be seen in the proclamations issued by the king in his last two years, forbidding the importation, buying, or selling tobacco, which was not of the proper growth of the colonies of Virginia and the Somers Islands. These proclamations were several times confirmed by Charles I, the latest being on January 8, 1631, but they do not seem to have had much effect. Haynes' diary contains one or two entries relating to smokers' requisites. In September 1639, he spent two pence on a new spring to his tobacco tongs. These were the tongs used for lifting a live coal to light the pipe, to which I have referred in a previous page. On the last day of 1640, Hayne paid Dr. Drake's man one shilling five pence for six dozen tobacco pipes. From the various entries in the diary relating to the purchase of tobacco, it seems clear that there was no shop in Exeter devoted specially or exclusively to the sale of the weed. Hayne bought his supplies from four of the leading goldsmiths of the city, 
who can be identified by the fact that he had dealings with them in their own special wares, also from two drapers, one grocer, and four other tradesmen, on a single occasion each, whose particular occupations were unknown. But to turn from this worthy Exeter citizen to more famous names, I do not know of any good evidence as to whether or not Cromwell smoked, although he is said to have taken an occasional pipe while considering the offer of the crown, but John Milton certainly did. The account of how the blind poet passed his days, after his retirement from public office, was first told by his contemporary Richardson, and has since been repeated by all his biographers. His placid day ended early. The poet took his frugal supper at eight o'clock, and at nine, having smoked a pipe and drunk a glass of water, he went to bed. Apparently this modest allowance of a daily evening pipe was the extent of Milton's indulgence in tobacco. He knew nothing of what most smokers regard as the best pipe of the day, the after-breakfast pipe. It is somewhat singular that the Puritans, who denounced most amusements and pleasures, and who frowned upon most of the occupations or diversions that make for gaiety and the enjoyment of life, did not, as Puritans, denounce the use of tobacco. One or two of their writers abused it roundly, but these were not representative of Puritan feeling on the subject. The explanation doubtless is that the practice of smoking was so very general and so much a matter of course among men of all ranks and of all opinions that the mouths of Puritans were closed, so to speak, by their own pipes. A precision, however, could take his tobacco with a difference. The seventeenth-century diarist, Abraham de la Prime, says that he had heard of a Presbyterian minister who was so precise that he would not as much as take a pipe of tobacco before that he had first said grace over it. George Wither, one of the most noteworthy of the poets who took the side of the Parliament, was confined in Newgate after the Restoration and found comfort in his pipe. Some of the Puritan colonists in America took a strong line on the subject. Under the famous Blue Laws of 1650, it was ordered by the General Court of Connecticut that no one under twenty-one was to smoke, nor any other that hath not already accustomed himself to the use thereof. And no smoker could enjoy his pipe unless he obtained a doctor's certificate that tobacco would be useful for him, and also that he hath received a license from the court for the same. But the unhappy smoker, having passed the doctor and obtained his license, was still harassed by restrictions, for it was ordered that no man within the colony, after the publication of the order, should take any tobacco publicly, in the street, highways, or any barnyards, or upon training days, in any open places, under the penalty of sixpence for each offense against this order. The ingenuities of petty tyranny are ineffable. It is said that these blue laws are not authentic, but if they are not literally true, they are certainly well invented, for most of them can be paralleled and illustrated by laws and regulations of undoubted authenticity. Mrs. Alice Morse Earle, in her interesting book abounding in curious information on the Sabbath in Puritan New England, says that the use of tobacco was absolutely forbidden under any circumstances in the Sabbath within two miles of the meeting-house, which, since at that date all the houses were clustered round the church green, was equivalent to not smoking it at all on the Lord's day, if the law were obeyed. But wicked backsliders existed, poor slaves of habit, who were in Duxbury fixed ten shillings for each offence, and in Portsmouth not only were fined, 
but to their shame be it told, set as jailbirds in the Portsmouth cage. In Sandwich and in Boston, the fine for drinking tobacco in the meeting-house was five shillings for each drink, which I take to mean chewing tobacco rather than smoking it. Many men were fined for thus drinking and solacing the weary hours, though doubtless they were as sly and kept themselves as unobserved as possible. Four Yarmouth men, old sea-dogs perhaps who loved their pipe, were in 1687 fined four shillings each for smoking tobacco around the end of the meeting-house. Silly, ostrich-brained Yarmouth men, to fancy to escape detection by hiding round the corner of the church, and to think that the tithing man had no nose when he was so argus-eyed. On weekdays many New England Puritans probably smoked as their friends in Old England did. A contemporary painting of a group of Puritan divines over the mantelpiece of Parson Lowell of Newbury shows them well provided with punch-bowl and drinking-cups, tobacco and pipes. One parson, the Reverend Mr. Bradstreet, of the First Church of Charlestown, was very unconventional in his attire. He seldom wore a coat, but generally appeared in a plaid gown and was always seen with a pipe in his mouth. John Eliot, the noble preacher and missionary to the Indians, warmly denounced both the wearing of wigs and the smoking of tobacco, but his denunciations were ineffectual in both matters. Heads continued to be adorned with curls of foreign growth, and pipe smoke continued to ascend. In this country tobacco is said to have invaded even the House of Commons itself. Dr. J. H. Byrne, in his Descriptive Catalogue of London Tokens, writes, About the middle of the seventeenth century it was ordered that no member of the house do presume to smoke tobacco in the gallery or at the table of the house sitting as committees. I do not know what the authority for this order may be, but there is no doubt that smoking was practiced in the precincts of the house. In Mercurius Pragmaticus, December 19 to 26, 1648, the writer says on December 20, speaking of the excluded members, Colonel Pride, standing sentinel at the door, denied entrance and caused them to retreat into the lobby where they used to drink ale and tobacco. There is a curious entry in Thomas Burton's diary of the proceedings of Cromwell's Parliament, which suggests that there may have been the luxury of a member's smoking-room. Burton was a member of the parliaments of Oliver and Richard Cromwell from 1656 to 1659, and made a practice, for which historical students have been and are much his debtors, of taking notes of the debates as he sat in the house. Members sometimes objected to and protested against this note-taking, but Burton quietly went on using his pencil, and though his summaries of speeches were often difficult to follow, argument and sense suffering by compression, he has preserved much very valuable matter. Referring to a debate on January 7, 1656-57, on an attempt to go behind the previously passed Act of Oblivion, the diarist records that Sir John Reynolds had numbered the house and said at rising there were 220 at the least, besides tobacconists. This can only mean that there were at least 220 members actually present in the house when it rose, not counting the tobacconists or smokers who were enjoying their pipes, not in the chamber itself, but in some conveniently adjoining place, which may have been a room for the purpose, or may have simply been the lobby referred to above in the extract from Mercurius Pragmaticus. It seems likely that Richard Cromwell was a smoker. In 1689, long after he had retired into private life and had ample leisure for blowing clouds, 
he sent to a friend a box of tobacco, which was described as A. J. Bod, Bodden's, Best Virginia. In a letter to his daughter Elizabeth, dated 21 January 1705, there is a reference to this same dealer, whom he describes as Adam Bodden, Bacchanist in George Yard, Lumber, Lombard Street. The allusion is worth noting as a very early instance of the colloquial trick of abbreviation familiar in later days in such forms as Bacchi and Bacca and their compounds. End of chapter 4